I find it helpful when I come to God's Word to remind myself that what I have in front of me is more important than gold. It's more important than silver. You can't put a price tag on the Word of God. And it should be sweeter than honey to my taste, but that is not always the case. Sometimes I don't I don't uh, value it as I should, and when that is the case, I say, oh, Lord, would you please help me? Please help me to get my value system right in life, that this is the most important book that I could possibly have. It's the only one that's a revelation from heaven, and my response to this book is the response that I have to the God of heaven above. So let's pray and ask God to be the true teacher, and we will continue. We have begun in the Gospel of Matthew, and we will look at three baptisms this morning. Uh, First of all, we'll review again the baptism by John, John's baptism, and it was a baptism, a preparatory baptism, one of preparation for the Messiah, and then we will look at the one that John prophesied about, that when the Messiah comes, he will baptize you. And when I see that, it's not in water. I take it spirit fire, we'll we'll talk about that. Not two baptisms, but one baptism. Uh, Spirit fire. And it's efficacious. You may get baptized in water, but your heart is not right. You may just be saying things, but your heart wasn't right. If you get baptized by the Holy Spirit, this is efficacious. A heart, your heart does get changed. And then, most important of all, we will, in, in this list, we will look at the baptism by John of Jesus. This is not Christian baptism. It is not the reason why we get baptized, but it is unique because Jesus said to John, let us, John and Jesus, fulfill all righteousness. Now the interpretations of that, as one commentator has said, are legion. So I will walk with you my understanding of that passage, and if you disagree with me this morning, I hope you won't throw rocks at me and I won't throw rocks at you but uh, we will look carefully. Two things have to be taken into consideration when you look at that passage. Fulfillment and righteousness. And if you don't bring those things to bear, I don't think we can possibly understand what the baptism of Jesus was all about. But let's pray and ask God to be the true teacher. Lord, I, I don't know everybody's heart out there. You do. There, there is nothing that is hidden from you. You know the heart and the condition of everybody that is present this morning. Some may not be part of the kingdom of heaven yet. They may never have truly repented of their sin and, and trusted in you. We can preach the gospel, but we can't take it to the heart. We can't do what only you can do through the Spirit, and produce regeneration. So I pray for those who may be in that camp, 
that you would be gracious and merciful to them and cause them to recognize the urgency of the hour, that the only breath that we can be assured of is the one we're taking. May they flee from the wrath to come and find refuge in the Lamb. And then, Lord, for your people, sometimes there, there, there may be sluggishness for some in the spiritual race, that they've lost appetite for the Scriptures. They have not established godly habits and patterns of feeding upon your Word. Work in their hearts. Cause them to, to see, to perceive how important this book is, to read it, to meditate upon it, and to grow in truth and grace. For those who are rebellious, may you bring conviction upon them. For those who are sorrowful, may you bring the comfort that only the Spirit of God can truly bring. And those who are rejoicing, may they give great thanks to you. So work in the heart and life of each person present. Make us a people that are humble and contrite in spirit and tremble in your word. And Lord, I ask most of all, make us a holy people, a people who hate sin, particularly in our own lives, and love righteousness. Make us a people who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Keep us from cultural Christianity. Give us the genuine, real thing, we pray. And use your word to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. We've begun to work our way through the gospel according to Matthew, the tax collector, a Talones. He's a subordinate worker who collects taxes for Rome, the man you may face in the toll booth. You're going to see him eyeball to eyeball and the customs office. And in general, he was greatly despised in Jewish society. Matthew only mentions him twice, himself twice in, the, in his gospel. It's a reminder his gospel is not about him, but it's about the Messiah who called him from his tax office. And one day Jesus came by, and Matthew's sitting in his tax collector. He says, come follow me. Luke records his name not as Matthew, but as Levi, the son of Alphys. He says, come and follow me. And he followed him. As an unconverted Jew, Matthew, or Levi, the tax collector, had his own priorities in life. But when the Messiah called him, not just with a general call, but with an effective call, Matthew left his tax booth and followed the Lord. As an unconverted Jew, Matthew or Levi uh, then began to, once he became under conviction and believed uh, the Messiah and followed him around uh, for three years, for three years, They had a lot to learn. And how is God going to take that group of men so that they'll turn the world upside down? I, would, I submit to you Jesus was pretty effective in his training 
uh, of those men. And being a Jewish follower of the Messiah, with an understanding of the Hebrew Scriptures, he wrote his gospel to reach not only his fellow countrymen, but that in particular, an emphasis upon Jewish people. And that's why he keeps going back to the Old Testament Scriptures and say, you remember what the Old Testament Scripture says? Here's fulfillment. Here's fulfillment. And he keeps pointing them to the Messiah. But he wrote not only for them, but also for Gentiles. I'm, I'm thinking of Paul later on when Paul says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. He says, I wish I, that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They're Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. And I read this gospel, and I think that same thought pulsed through Matthew's mind as he, the despised tax collector, looked out in his fellow countrymen and wrote in particular to say, you believe the Scriptures? Look how they point to Christ. We come from different backgrounds, but one of the things that I am greatly encouraged when I see someone uh, maybe maybe uh, in their 20s, maybe, maybe later, and uh, as they come to Christ, they, they have a burden for others. They want to see others come to Christ too. And we're, we're challenged here as we, as we read this. We should be reminded. I see houses going up, housing additions all around us, and, and as I drive past those, I pray, oh, Lord, help us to reach people. Help us to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They'll perish eternally without the Savior, and then not only reach them, but to disciple them in the truths of Jesus Christ, so we will see another generation Going on. So, the way Matthew is doing that, we looked at his major theme. He says, Behold, the promised Messiah, Jesus, the one who saves his people from their sins, Emmanuel, the Hebrew term, that uh, God with us. And we find when you come down to the end, those are the bookends around this gospel and how he gets there at the end that all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. And uh, He's with us always. That's Emmanuel. And that's what we're walking through verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph. We began with the introduction to Matthew's gospel, and we saw two key things right up front. It's the book of the, and I would use birth, of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So there we have, right at the very beginning we have the covenant with Abraham and the covenant with David and the Messiah is the one who is going to fulfill that. He has the right ancestry. He has the right lineage. Go back to the Old Testament and see what it has to say about him. And then we looked at the supernatural conception of Jesus 
the Messiah, that he has a biological mother, but his father is God himself. And he placed within that virgin young woman and enabled her to have a child. You say, I don't understand it. Well, I don't either, but I believe what the Scriptures have to say. If God is able to create this universe ex nihilo out of nothing, that's no problem for the God to begin uh, to do this. And then we looked in chapter 2 at the Father's sovereign protection of His Son. Um, Herod uh, was only interested in one thing, eliminate all rivals. And so when the Magi came from the east and they arrived probably in a large caravan and very noticeable, and they're asking, uh, where is the king of the Jews? And alarms are going off in, in Herod's mind. King? Rival? And so he brought in two disparate groups, Sadducees and Pharisees, and, and inquired of them, where is he going to be born? And they knew. They knew. This is, they knew Micah. They knew direct uh, prophecy there. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. But they didn't, they didn't go down to check it out. Herod wanted to know so he could eliminate any rivals. And so the Magi went down there, and then God revealed to them, no, no, don't go back. Go by a different way back to the east. So probably around the southern end of the, the uh, Dead Sea, they headed back, back east. And Herod was in a rage. And he ordered those underneath his authority to go out and kill every child to and under from those he had ascertained from the Magi at the time. Now, Bethlehem was a very small town at that time, so it, it wasn't like back at the Exodus when massive numbers of children uh, were, were killed by uh, Pharaoh and the Egyptian troops. So some trying to estimate what was the size of Nazareth, maybe... Maybe it was a dozen children uh, were, were murdered. He would go out and have his troops do that. But you know what? Herod died. Herod died. Every demagogue, every ruler, every person will have his day briefly in the sun. But he will perish. And if he does not repent, he will stand before the living God and have to give an account, and there will be no hope for him. And so that's what we looked at basically in the first two chapters. God protected his son. He told him to go down to Egypt. We had that fulfillment of prophecy. Out of Egypt I have called my son. I take that's a pattern of fulfillment that we looked at out of Hosea. And then we come down to here he is at Nazareth. Is going to be called a Nazarene. No Old Testament scripture says that, but probably they're talking about he's despised. Nazareth? Seriously? And now we, come, we came to chapter 3, and chapter 3 and 4 are going to be the first. That's the introduction. Now we come, remember, how many sections of narrative and discourse are there in Matthew? This is, this is to see if you went to sleep when I was doing that. 
One, two, three, four, five. There we go. I, I, saw, I saw a hand back there with five. Yes, there are five sections, and it's a good way to help you think through because I think that's intentional by Matthew because at the end he has, here's the narrative, here's, here's the works, here's what Jesus did, how the narrative moves along, and then we'll come to a teaching section, a discourse, and there are five of them. And at the end of the discourse, there's always a transitional statement that goes back to the narrative again. So we're in that first section of narrative and uh, uh, discourse. Um, So we're looking at the narrative, the start of the public ministry uh, of Jesus, and all, all Gospels begin this way with attention to John the Baptist in fulfillment that he is the forerunner. Now, John includes only the reference. He doesn't talk about the baptism per se. He says, that's how I knew that this was the Messiah, the one upon whom the Spirit descends. So we're, uh, the, John's preparation uh, for the For the Messiah involved his baptism of repentance. He will talk about the spirit baptism by the coming one, and then the baptism of Jesus. The rest of that will go down. We'll look at the temptation of Jesus in the weeks to come, the preaching of Jesus. Same as John, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the call of the disciples, then there's teaching, proclaiming, healing, and that will move directly into that first section on five through seven on the sermon, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And it always starts with the kind of people that are in the kingdom of heaven. It's those who are poor in spirit. That particular word means bankrupt. You have nothing, no merit of your own, but you trust is in him. So, John's, we start then of the three baptisms. We talk about John's preparation in the baptism of repentant sinners. So I'm going to review here, chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And before we have any reference to his baptism, we have this, repent. Repent. It's not merely have a particular kind of thinking. It includes that. But true, genuine repentance always issues in a change of life. And he's going to make that clear. And if there's no change of life, if you just have thoughts up there, but you show no evidence in your life that you have changed regarding what God has to say in his word, then no true repentance has taken place. And let me remind you again about repentance and faith. They go hand in glove. Hey, I could hold my arm up this time. It didn't hurt. This is good. It's progress. Um, Repentance and faith are this. Repentance is the negative aspect. It's what you are turning away from. You're turning away from sin. And faith is the positive aspect. You are placing trust in God alone for your salvation. 
Those two together we call conversion. Now, here's the rub. Let me ask you this morning, if you, if you perceive that you are saved, how do you know you're saved? Well, when I ask that question of myself, I always do this. I go back to what God has done. I don't start with my fruit in my life. I go back to what God has done. And do I believe his promise? He has said that if I come to him, he will not cast me out. That if I place my faith and trust in him, he will save me. First John, he is the propitiation, the satisfaction for my sin. And I have come to him, I have trusted in him, I have fled from sin, and I, I say, you are my savior, and I am confident that he has saved me. That's not an arrogant statement, it's just believing what God has to say. Then secondarily, I must ask myself, okay, has there been any fruit in your life? Is there any change? And I always start with this. What's your attitude towards the Word of God? I remember one student told me, that, that book is boring. It's boring. I said, always boring? He said, uh, well, I can't read those genealogies. I can't even pronounce the names. I find them boring. I go, well, you know, there is a purpose for those in Scripture. I wouldn't start in Genesis 5 or 11. Maybe you ought to start in the Gospel of John and trying to get a handle on what it says there. But if you start reading the Gospel of John, you go, this is boring. I have no desire for Scripture. you got a major problem here. Do you enjoy or like fellowship with God's people? If there's nothing there in your life and, and, and on and on and does sin taste differently to you? Do you not only know that sin is, is evil, it's against the holiness of God, but do you turn away from it? And if the answer to all those questions are no, I'm not God, I can't see your heart, but I ought to challenge you. I ought to challenge you. How do you know you're saved if there's nothing in there? So you want to start with what God has said. You go to the cross, you believe he's your Savior, and then secondarily, there should be some change in your thinking and in your life. So he starts with this way, repent, and the basis of it here is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's John's signature phrase that occurs 32 times in the only, John, I mean, only, um, Matthew, how about Matthew wrote this gospel? I got up at 5 o'clock this morning. I forgot my notes, and I'm told mine when we got to the hotel. I got a little time here on Friday night. I'll pull out my notes and review them, and I pulled them out, and I left them on my desk. So um, this is an apology. This is just me trying to think about where I'm at here. I am in the Gospel of Matthew. And so as Matthew is uh, writing, and he says John's message is this, repent, and the basis of it is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is Matthew's signature phrase. Now, my understanding of this, the kingdom began with Jesus and his proclamation and his works. So he is ruling and reigning in the lives of people who trust him. But 
There will be a future consummation of that kingdom when he returns physically to earth. You say, well, where do you fall on all those issues? Well, I'm a premillennialist. You go, why are you a premillennialist? Because if those prophecies in the Old Testament are not true, they're not told to be symbolic or spiritual, and so I just say, hey, if, if, they're, if those don't come to pass and they're not told to be spiritual, when, how are they going to be fulfilled? So the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and if you want in the kingdom, you have to repent. You have to turn to him. And then Matthew verifies, this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And we saw his dress was comparable to one of the prophets like Elijah. And can you imagine, after 400 years of silence, here is a person out there in the wilderness along the Judean, along the Jordan River, saying, repent for the kingdom of God of heaven is at hand, and he looks like a prophet, and they're going, kingdom? They're getting excited. The kingdom is coming, but they got a lot of misconceptions about what the kingdom is. And so they're all coming out, and John says this, his baptism is unique for people at that time. You don't get baptized because John was baptizing people. He is saying, prepare the way of the Lord. Look at verse seven, 6, and they were they were being baptized, that's an imperfect tense, by him in the Jordan River while they were confessing their sins. So in other words, John's baptism was preparatory. It's pointing forward, and you're getting ready that something great is happening, the kingdom is at hand, and get your heart right. Then in verse 7, he also had some other folks show up. The Pharisees and Sadducees were coming now, some of you may have the translation for his baptism. I don't think that's, uh, that's a good uh, translation of that preposition of P. It just means uh, at the place of, at the point of. So they weren't coming out to him seeking to get baptized by him necessarily. They were just coming out to where he's being baptized. And this, this was a great, uh, I mean, can, can you imagine the sensation of all, it says, Judea, and Jerusalem, and they're, uh, the Jordan, verse 5, they're all coming out. And so the Pharisees and Sadducees say, we got to go check out what's happening down there. So they come down uh, to John, and he sees them, and uh, he has a particular greeting for him. He knows the characteristics of the Pharisees and Sadducees, that they are self-righteous. And he says, you brood of snakes, poisonous snakes, who warned you? to flee from the wrath to come. Now, at least in the ESV, they don't translate the therefore, but I think it's important to translate the therefore in verse 8, as some of you may have. Therefore, therefore, you want to flee from the wrath to come? Here's the hope, the only hope. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't play the race card. Don't say we have Abraham as our father. God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham, and the urgency of it, even now, right now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Some who argue that we should not preach uh, 
repentance, they go to the Gospel of John and they say, show me in the Gospel of John where the word metanoia, the noun for repentance, or the verb metanoia, it's not there. I say, no, it's not. But you have the concept is there. Go to John 15. Um, Every branch that doesn't abide in me is cut down and is thrown into the into the fire. So it, it is there. And when you come down to the end of Luke, what do you have? That's supposed to be part of our message. You go to Paul in Acts, and what did he say? I preached both repentance from sin and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So there it is, this preparatory baptism by John. And now he announces to the people that the one who is coming after him the stronger one, whose sandals he is not worthy to carry, he contrasts, I, I baptize in water, but this one, it's going to be a different kind of baptizing. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, some understand two baptisms here a baptism in the Holy Spirit, and a baptism in fire. And they would also plead to verse 12 that there's the the fire uh, one uh, efficacious in terms you get baptized with the Holy Spirit. You, You have God's work of grace in your heart. And the other one, the fire, is for unbelievers in judgment. I do not hold that particular view for this reason. I will baptize you with or in the Holy Spirit and fire. The preposition is not repeated. It is one preposition governing two nouns, and he does not repeat the verb eh, either and say, he will baptize you with or in the Holy Spirit and in fire. So I take it that there's one baptism. It's a spirit fire baptism. You say, so what does that mean? It's two words that are basically conveying the same type of uh, uh, thing. I haven't even looked at my notes here, so now I need to go down to them uh, rather than have to turn the passage. Fire in the Old Testament is not necessarily, it can be a picture of uh, uh, judgment, but fire is also used of refining, of purifying. And so I'm going to quote a couple of passages. Zechariah 13, 9, I will bring one-third through the fire. We will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them, and I will say, this is my people, and each one will say, the Lord is my God. Then I'm going to turn to Malachi here. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold through fire. So I understand one, one baptism here, spirit fire baptism. The spirit is going to make this efficacious, and fire describes this both as a purifying uh, result. Now, flip over to the end of Luke. Chapter 24. 
Notice also in verse 47, repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name. So repentance is a part of the gospel, uh, to turn from sin and to turn to him. And he tells his disciples this, verse 49, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He led him out as far as Bethany, lifted up his hands, he blessed them, he parted from them, and was carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Now, Luke Acts, Luke is volume one, Acts is volume two of Dr. Luke. The reason why John is in between those two in our Bibles is because they wanted to put all four Gospels together. But really, you go from the end of Luke to the beginning of Acts and do that if you'll flip over to Acts chapter 1. And I'm jumping down to verse 4. And while staying with them, he, Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So something is going to take place here, at least in a fulfillment or one of the aspects of what John is talking about. I'm jumping down to 115. Uh, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons who was in all about 120. So that's, that's the setting. And we jump down to 2-1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. So there they are together, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them. In other words... The, the, the tongue, it, this was spreading about like fire and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is not an initial conversion. These people already know the Savior. This is a post-conversion uh, event, and the result of that in verses 5 and 6, was their speaking in known languages. This is an evangel evangelistic result. This is not, nobody can understand it. This is, not the diff this is different from 1 Corinthians 14, where people are speaking in the church, and you have to have an interpreter. There was no interpreter necessary here. They were speaking. And so, at, and at this sound, the multitude came together, they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Verse 11, Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So the spirit fire baptism also had an ethical dimension. It's enabling them, the 120, to supernaturally communicate in a language that they had never studied. Boy, every seminary would love that. Um, don't have to learn Greek, don't have to learn Hebrew, just comes upon you, and, and, and uh, there you are. Now, so I take this, this was part 
of what John was talking about. It says so. Now jump down to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. Because some will say they'll take that initial event and say everybody needs it. Everybody needs it. It doesn't say that in Acts chapter 1. We have to be careful about descriptive, describing what is taking place, and prescriptive, this is something for everybody. But they will equate this to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. I'm going to start in verse 12. What's the problem in 1 Corinthians 12? It's spiritual gifts. People are arrogant. I got this one. You don't. I'm better, etc. Verse 12, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body through many are one body, so it is with Christ. And he's going to say, here's the unity established by the Spirit. For in one Spirit we were, watch this, not just 120 on the day of Pentecost, but we were all baptized into one body. And there's no water here. This is Spirit. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. So the all is emphasized there twice, the work of the Spirit. So jumping back to Matthew chapter 3 and this, this baptism, I take it is it, it had a manifestation on the day of Pentecost for those, a post-conversion event. But here in 1 Corinthians 12, it's talking about a conversion event that everybody in the body of Christ experiences. Now, Matthew 3.12. So you say, well, what do you, what do, you do with 3.12 then if the fire is not describing that? You're taking spirit, fire as one baptism, spirit enabling, fire cleansing. Then you come down to verse 12. Here's what happens if you don't get that. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear, it's, it's a very strong term, his threshing floor, and gather, what? His wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. In other words, it's, it's a very strong uh, warning about failing to repent. The unquenchable fire there does point forward to judgment. Unquenchable fire is not a meaningless metaphor. Fearful reality underlies Messiah's separation of grain from chaff. So let me just summarize. Wow, five till. Okay. The axe laid at the tree indicates this judgment is already in process. The unquenchable fire underscores the severity of the judgment that does not correspond to annihilationism. There's a teaching today that the lost uh, will just be annihilated. You go to Matthew 24 and it'll say eternal life and eternal judgment. Same adjective, parallel. So if you got eternal life, the judgment is eternal as well. It's eternal loss and, and, and suffering. One commentator writes, Today, Taken together, these images present a very different picture of God and his rule than is often presented in pulpits today, where the stress today is often on goods and services to meet people's felt needs. 
One wonders whether John would even recognize this gospel of self-actualization as an authentic interpretation of the message of the kingdom. It is thoroughly tied to repentance. Now, I'm going to leave my notes alone since I just got a few minutes. I'm going to put them over here, and we'll talk about the baptism. Get past this one. To the revelatory baptism of Jesus by John. And when I say revelatory, it is revealing from heaven this Messiah. So, Jesus shows up from Galilee to the place of the Jordan to be baptized by him. And this is, this, this is so strange. He, won't, he baptizes all who are confessing their sins, and he won't baptize the Pharisees and the Sadducees because he knows their character. And now he refuses or wants to try to prevent Jesus from being baptized. He says, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Now, looking over at the Gospel of John, he does not know for sure who the Messiah is until the Spirit of God descends upon him. But at least he has some type of cognition here. Maybe this is the Messiah, I take it, because he understands how unworthy he is. And it's going to be confirmed to him when this event takes place. So now notice what Jesus says. Let it be so now, at this point in the uh, history and unfolding of redemption now, for it is appropriate, appropriate or fitting for us, for John and Jesus, to fulfill all righteousness. And when you hear that word fulfill, you should be thinking, going back to the Old Testament, there's something that Jesus is going to fulfill. He is going to fulfill all righteousness by Jesus and John being baptized. Now, some take this and, and uh, say it's merely an identification of, of Jesus with the people. I don't think that, that does the fulfillment uh, theme. And what is righteousness? Remember when, when uh, Joseph refused, or it says he wasn't going to um, put, he wanted to put Mary away privately because he was a righteous person. And so righteous there means he followed what God had to say in his word. He, he, he was a righteous man. Some read in here righteousness that what Paul means in uh, justification. No, he's saying us to fulfill all righteousness. This is what is right according to the will of God. And so he says, this is right for us to do right now. And so John consented, and when Jesus was baptized, it doesn't describe the baptism, it's just when he came up from the water. And look at this, the heavens were open to him. Now normally, that means you're looking up into heavens and you have a vision. Remember Acts chapter 7 when Stephen was stoned and he's looking up and the heavens were open. Here, it's not looking up, but now the heavens are open and it's as if heaven is coming down. And watch what the revelation we have and how this ties into fulfillment. He saw, at least Jesus saw, and we know that John saw, and by the way, when he came to him 
Others were being baptized. I don't know how many were standing around watching this thing. But he saw the heavens opened him and the Spirit of God descending. It wasn't a dove, the adverb there, a gentle descent like a dove, and came to rest on him. So there is the Spirit of God coming upon Jesus and an empowerment for his ministry. We'll read later on when Jesus did his works. He did them by the power of the Spirit of God. But look at this. Behold, a voice from heaven. Don't miss this. This is my beloved Son. This, now here's the fulfillment. Psalm 2.7, 2 Samuel 7.13-14. This is the Son. This is the Davidic Son. His kingdom will last forever. The beloved, the suffering servant of Isaiah 42.1. This is the suffering servant. Recognize him. The voice from heaven is verifying, and Jesus is making a commitment to fulfill all righteousness. He knows why he's there. He's going to do the Father's will. He is confirming to John and to all those around, I'm committed to come, to suffer, and to save the people. And he's, that, that is going to be sorely tested in the next event, the temptation by Satan. And I'm, I'm out of time with whom I was well pleased. So let me just wrap this up in this way. Three baptisms, baptism by John, one in preparation, Baptism by Jesus, this is a baptism in spirit fire. One baptism, cleansing, purifying, efficacious. You may get John's baptism. I may baptize somebody out in our, in our big baptistry out there, and they may affirm all the right things, but if the heart is not right, nothing was accomplished. They just got wept. When Jesus baptizes you in the spirit and fire, something efficaciously happens. You, you get transferred into the kingdom. And then third, if you have any questions about who Jesus is, Matthew is saying this. Go back to the Old Testament. Listen to the voice from heaven. Lock that back into what the Old Testament scriptures say about the son, about the suffering servant. He's here. He's here. He's come. So don't miss heaven's affirmation of the beloved Son and his unswerving commitment of obedience to the will of the Father to accomplish full and final revelation. If you miss this, if you miss this, nothing awaits you except for unquenchable fire. Flee from the wrath to come. And when we flee to the Savior, we come to his words and his discourses, and we say, this is my authority, the word of God. Help me to submit to it, O God, because the degree that I believe and obey this book is the degree that I obey and love the true God of heaven above. May God work in your heart. I can't see your heart. God knows your heart right now, whether you're in, in apathy, indifference, unbelief, struggling, Whatever, whatever response you need to make to glorify God, to put him supreme in your life, do it as we sing our closing hymn, Jerry.